Welcome to Aesthetic Staff Bootcamp. This educational podcast, brought to you by the Aesthetic Society and sponsored by Elastin, is geared specifically towards aesthetic plastic surgery staff. I'm Dr. Regina Newhan, a now retired plastic surgeon with a long practice history, and I'm happy to be your guide for this informative experience, which is designed to help get you up to speed in learning about a variety of popular aesthetic procedures and is intended to be a supplement to your surgeon's instructions and unique protocols. This podcast will benefit new staff, both clinical and non-clinical, as they navigate their plastic surgery office duties and care of patients, but it may also serve as a refresher for established team members. For each episode, we'll highlight at least five basic categories of information regarding the specific topic or procedure being discussed. These categories are, number one, overview and goals of the procedure, including definitions, medical terminology, and pertinent anatomy. Number two, basic procedural technique, how it's done. Number three, consultation pearls, including what's important and who's a candidate. Number four, perioperative care, which is unique to each office, but there are some common basics. And number five, patient experience and concerns, like what to expect afterwards, patient questions or problems, and potential complications. There will be a lot of information provided in a user-friendly manner. However, you may find it's a lot to digest at one sitting. Please feel free to revisit sections of each episode as often as necessary to meet your own personal needs. So let's get started. The subject of this episode is abdominoplasty, commonly known as tummy tuck. Since it's consistently among the most popular aesthetic procedures, let's delve in so you can have a comfortable understanding of it. The word abdominoplasty is like many procedure names based on Latin and Greek origins, and it refers to a surgery that allows a surgeon to change the shape of the abdomen. It's been around for greater than a century, but over those many years, improvements and modifications have been made, such that there are now several different techniques available. The choice of which to use depends on the patient's specific needs and the surgeon's preference. But despite the many permutations, the basic procedure simply involves surgically removing excess skin and fat from the abdominal wall, often with tightening of the underlying support of that abdominal wall for contour. In other words, abdominoplasty is designed to address three components or layers of the abdominal wall which may need intervention. Those are excess skin, excess fat, and laxity or looseness of the supporting fascia that covers the rectus muscles. The rectus muscles are what you might think of as the six-pack muscles, and fascia is the gristle-like strong tissue that covers them. Actually, not every patient needs modification of all three of these layers, but each is at least examined and considered for possible treatment. How is an abdominoplasty performed? I mentioned that there are several techniques for accomplishing a tummy tuck, but let's go over the basic technique and then discuss how it could be modified or adapted from there. Typically with a patient under general anesthesia, an incision is made transversely across the lowest part of the abdomen, and the length depends on how much extra skin is present. We never want an incision to be excessive, but we need it to be long enough to be able to remove that extra skin without leaving behind a dog ear which is a colloquial term 
for a pucker of excess or mismatched skin. The incision is usually placed where it would be hidden by a bathing suit bottom, and some surgeons will ask patients to bring in such a garment to help when it's time to do preoperative markings for the surgery. After incision in the skin, dissection is performed down through the fat to the level of the fascia of the rectus muscles, but the fascia is not entered. Then the flap of skin and fat, as a unit, is separated from the fascia in a superior direction. This dissection continues all the way up to the ribcage margin during a full tummy tuck, but the width of the dissection gradually narrows in the upper half of the abdomen to help preserve blood supply to this elevated tissue. Elevation of the abdominal flap allows any skin and fat rolls, if you will, to be straightened out as the loosened flap is stretched toward the pelvis, much like a wrinkled piece of fabric would be straightened before measuring and trimming. During this stage, it becomes apparent how much excess skin is truly present and can therefore be trimmed prior to wound closure. The patient's OR bed may be placed in a semi-flexed position at the hip to facilitate getting the skin relatively taut during this measuring and trimming step. But wait, what about the umbilicus, which is the navel or belly button? What happens to it during this dissection to elevate the flap? Most commonly, a circular incision is made closely around the umbilicus to separate it from the flap and allow it to stay in position by its underlying attachment to the abdominal wall. If it were elevated along with the flap, then when this excess tissue is stretched downward, the new umbilical position would look way too low and unnatural so it is ideally left in place. Now once the flap is stretched down and excess trimmed and skin stitch closed, the flap will temporarily be covering the umbilicus. But then a new skin opening is made right over the umbilical stalk so it can be brought back out externally and sutured in place. Later when the patient looks in the mirror, their belly button seems like it's in the right position since it has remained attached to the same spot of the abdominal wall all along. Then what about the skin hole in the flap that has been created by the circular incision to separate the umbilicus and allow it to stay in place? Well, usually there is enough excess skin so that when the loosened flap is pulled down, the section containing the hole ends up being removed, solving the problem. That being said, occasionally there is a lesser amount of skin to be removed, and the surgeon anticipates the umbilical hole would not be cleared during the trimming process. In that case, they may decide to keep the umbilicus as part of the flap and not make an incision around it, but instead release its attachment to the abdominal wall. So when the flap is stretched inferiorly, the umbilicus moves with the flap. This is called floating the umbilicus. Lowering the belly button a short distance can be tolerated aesthetically most times and still looks somewhat natural in proportion, but it's a delicate balance as I'm sure you can imagine. Okay, what we've discussed so far takes care of excess skin, but what about excess fat in the abdominal wall layers? Well, the portion of fat that is attached to the excess skin will be removed right along with it, but any remaining fat reduction needed for contouring can be done with liposuction. As for the timing of this part of the procedure, many surgeons prefer to do the liposuction before skin flap elevation, but some choose to do it after the excess skin has been resected. So now, that's two of our three components to be addressed in an abdominoplasty, skin and fat, but what about the third? The abdominal wall support, controlled by muscle position and the status of the fascia. That fascia may be stretched out, especially after pregnancy or weight gain and loss. 
So if you just remove excess skin and fat, there still may be a significant abdominal contour problem. Well, during the abdominoplasty, when the flap of skin and fat has been elevated off of the fascia, this is the perfect time to assess the fascia and tighten it with sutures as needed. Tightening can be accomplished by folding the stretched out portions of fascia upon itself, called a plication, and stitching it together to preserve this new tightened configuration. By the way, an easy way to remember the word plication is to think of the word root ply as referring to layers, such as in plywood. This process may help restore a waistline for a patient. It's kind of like creating an internal corset. After plication of the fascia, then the flap is tractioned inferiorly, excess trimmed, and the incisional wound closed in standard layers. Tightening or plicating the fascia is particularly helpful in a situation where a patient has developed a rectus diastasis, which means the long rectus muscles have separated from the midline and migrated laterally due to attenuated or stretched out fascial support in the midline. Sit-ups and muscle toning are not going to correct this loose fascia, unfortunately, but surgery will help. The repair does not stitch together the muscles themselves, but instead, by tightening the loose fascia, the central gap between the muscles is reduced. This brings the rectus muscles back to the midline, where they can give greater central support, and it helps correct a poochy abdomen. Often drains are placed in the dead space created by all the dissection during an abdominoplasty since the body sees this as an injury and will secrete fluid to try to heal itself. You could explain it to your patients by comparing it to the concept of forming a big internal blister. The drains allow that post-operative fluid buildup to have a way out and thereby hopefully avoid a seroma or a persistent fluid collection. This may also avoid fluid accumulation unnecessarily stretching out the newly taut abdominal contour. Though some surgeons will avoid drain placement by adjusting their closing suture technique to utilize internal quilting sutures. This method tacks the flap back down to the abdominal wall and minimizes how much distension of the tissues will be possible if fluid does build up. Now I mentioned that what I've just described is a technique for a standard full abdominoplasty, but there are some other versions worth talking about. The first is a mini abdominoplasty, which is ideal for patients who have just a little bit of excess tissue and mostly confined to the lower half of the abdomen below the umbilicus. With the mini, the incision is shorter and the flap elevation only extends to the umbilical level, so there is no need to make a circular incision around it or to float it. Excess skin and fat are trimmed, with or without additional liposuction, and fascial plication may or may not be indicated. Alternatively, when there is a lot of excess tissue to remove, an extended abdominoplasty could be indicated. The incision would be longer and may carry around the hips, often requiring turning the padded and protected patient from side to side during the procedure in order to get full access to the tissues to be reduced. This might be a necessary step for a patient who has had massive weight loss, for example, as the extra skin does not stop at the anterior hip. One variation of extension is called a fleur-de-lis abdominoplasty, named after the French label for the iconic three-petaled symbol. It adds a vertical incision, which allows additional removal of excess tissue in the vertical plane, rather than just having a horizontal resection. It's helpful in cases where there is a wider circumference of lower abdominal skin as compared to the hip circumference. But it does add an incision that would now be visible in a bikini or in men's bathing suit. The patients who undergo this procedure usually feel the trade-off for better contour is worth the extra scar. 
Taking the concept of extension even further, a belt lipectomy involving full circumferential incision could be performed, particularly in weight loss patients. As the name implies, the section of tissue removed resembles a belt, since it goes all the way around the trunk. Continuing with our list of abdominoplasty options and modifications, there is also a procedure called a reverse abdominoplasty, which places the incision superiorly right under the breasts rather than in the lower abdomen. Then the dissection is performed toward the inferior direction, with excess being pulled up superiorly and trimmed off before wound closure. This can be a choice for someone who has reasonably good contour and tone of the lower abdomen, but has isolated excess tissue in the upper abdomen above the umbilicus. Lastly, you may hear of a procedure called a paniculectomy being mentioned. In concept, it also removes excess skin from the lower abdomen, like most of the other procedures we've mentioned, but in contrast, it involves no dissection of tissues, whether above or below the incision. The lowest roll of excess tissue, called a panis when it's large or prominent, is simply removed directly by pinching to mark the excess, then trimming off and suturing closed. It is not uncommon as a lesser procedure for patients who have been successful in massive weight loss, but are left with this apron of extra tissue, if you will, that is uncomfortable, awkward in clothing, and can cause chafing rashes or intertrigo underneath. A paniculectomy will not produce a result that is as aesthetically pleasing as an abdominoplasty, but it gets the job done. This next section of our episode addresses the consultation for abdominoplasty. The biggest question is, how do you know who is a good candidate? Well, we go back to those three components, skin, fat, and abdominal wall support. The state of the abdominal skin is probably the most important here. If there is skin excess, then no amount of weight loss, fat removal, or exercise is going to change that problem. And in fact, in some cases, these could make the problem seem worse aesthetically when skin elasticity has been lost. The skin may just droop when the underlying fat that was holding it up is removed. So as you learned in the episode on liposuction, if skin elasticity is a problem, Reducing excess fat alone does not mean the skin will contract back to being taut. So isolated liposuction is not a solution for areas with stretched out skin. Incorporation of surgical skin removal, such as with a tummy tuck, is the most effective solution. Now there are some non-surgical or minimally invasive skin tightening technologies available, utilizing thermal energy like radiofrequency, ultrasound, laser, and even gas plasma. And these technologies continue to be refined and improved. But the bottom line is that they are all still limited in the amount of tightening of the skin they can produce. They are best used for areas where relatively small corrections are needed, as they cannot approach the level of correction that a surgical abdominoplasty can. And by now you may realize that extra skin and fat are not the only reasons people may be candidates for a tummy tuck. Isolated problems with abdominal wall support, even without skin excess, can still be an indication for abdominoplasty. Statistically, most patients undergoing abdominoplasties tend to be female, particularly with some of the irreversible changes that occur after pregnancy, but plenty of men have had the procedure as well. And any patient, female or male, who has had massive weight loss may likely benefit from skin removal and tightening of attenuated fascia that an abdominoplasty can provide. So who's not a candidate? Two main categories come to mind. 
One group includes people with medical issues. Major health problems are of concern since this is a relatively major surgery. This group may be at too high a risk for complications with such surgery, and input from a patient's primary care physician would be very helpful. Consultation includes review of the patient's medications, and patients who are on blood thinners are at higher risk for perioperative bleeding problems. Most surgeons will want the patient off of these meds for a short time around surgery if approved by their prescribing physician, or a faster-acting and faster-clearing substitute medication may be recommended for use leading up to the procedure. Similarly, active smokers are poor candidates due to the increased risk of wound healing problems in smokers. Most surgeons will require patients stop smoking for two to four weeks prior to surgery, and on the day of surgery they may test the patient's blood or urine for derivatives of nicotine to confirm this. The second group of poor candidates for abdominoplasty includes people who are significantly overweight and have much of their excess fat inside the abdominal cavity, creating a protuberant abdomen. A pinch test during the initial consultation and exam helps determine how much abdominal protuberance comes from pinchable skin and fat rather than from underlying bulging muscle and fascia. The internal fat will not be able to be removed, and therefore the fascia will not be able to be tightened very much, and that means contour improvement is destined to be unsatisfactory. A paniculectomy to just trim away the lower panis might be considered in some of these patients, but again the aesthetic outcome is limited. In these situations, it's probably better for the patient to lose weight first, then undergo an abdominoplasty for final contouring. Once a person has been determined to be a good candidate for surgery, it's important to make sure they have a good understanding of what will occur before, during, and after the procedure. Many surgeons prefer this to be accomplished during the consultation, even if it is at a second consultation visit. And of course, Having a good standardized set of photos taken of the patient's surgical area is as important to the medical record as the history and physical are. All right, moving on, what about postoperative care for tummy tuck patients? Most times, patients will go home the same day unless it was quite an extensive procedure and the plan is for them to be observed overnight. Patients are usually checked the next day and if a supportive abdominal binder or compression garment is not already in place, it would be applied then. Some surgeons like to wait until the following day to apply this to minimize risk of vascular compromise to the skin flap. And depending upon surgeon preference, a compression garment may be used for a range of two to four weeks or more as it provides support while also helping control swelling and contour. Patients should be made aware that they may feel they cannot stand up fully straight right after surgery due to the tight closure of the tummy tuck. They can be reassured that this will resolve itself over the next few days as the tissues naturally stretch. If drains are in place, they will usually stay until the drainage amount decreases to a low level, which could take several days. But each surgeon has their own protocol for this. And sutures are typically absorbable, but any that are not, such as perhaps around the umbilicus, would be removed in a week or so. Then scar care could be initiated. As for activity, the fascial plication is the biggest limiting factor. If this step was performed, it may take four to six weeks or so before a surgeon will allow more strenuous exercise due to concerns of rupturing internal sutures. For those cases, driving would usually not begin for at least two weeks or so, and only if the patient feels they have full control and ease of their movements and they are off any narcotic pain medication. Light activities can start sooner, but care must be taken not to overdo it and create complications. 
Of course, for a smaller procedure, like a mini-abdominoplasty, recovery time and return to activities is shortened accordingly. Though most swelling improves over the first few weeks, for all patients, it will likely be three months before final results can accurately be assessed. This would be a good time for follow-up pictures as well. And for our last section in this episode, let's go over a few questions patients frequently have, as well as potential complications. One common question that women of childbearing age have is what happens if I get pregnant after I have a tummy tuck? What they should know is that the newly taut abdomen will stretch with pregnancy, just like it would have before the abdominoplasty. That's not really the problem. But the unpredictable part is what happens to the abdominal wall tissues after the baby is delivered. Skin may not retract back to its tight consistency, and the plicated fascia may be stretched out again. By nature, it is not elastic. It would not be uncommon for a patient to need a revision surgery after pregnancy, so this is why it's advisable, when feasible, to wait until all planned pregnancies are completed before undergoing the abdominoplasty. Another question is, how long surgical results will last? And here is where so many variables come into play. Factors such as patient age, skin elasticity, overall health, weight fluctuations, injury or muscle strain too soon, can all affect the longevity of results. But generally, an abdominoplasty produces relatively enduring results. A new starting point of a contoured and supported abdomen has been created, from which point on, a patient may see some progressive changes, but is not likely to revert completely back to original appearance. A third question is, what happens if I gain or lose weight after surgery? Well, small fluctuations in weight don't tend to have too much consequence, but larger changes will indeed affect overall shape and contour, as you might expect. Weight gain will produce some undesired fullness, and perhaps some bulges in areas which may have had irregularities in the evenness of liposuction technique. And any accumulation of intra-abdominal fat will stretch out the supporting wall and could produce some recurrent protuberance. Alternatively, significant weight loss may produce more skin excess, since general loss of skin elasticity has been an established problem all along. Moving on to complications, abdominoplasty is considered a relatively safe and reliable procedure. That being said, there are always risks of complications, no matter how infrequent. Actually, one of the more common problems after abdominoplasty, which is not of great significance but can be quite annoying or uncomfortable for the patient, is the development of a seroma. Again, that's a fluid collection in the area of dissection. Yes, drains can be helpful, as can suturing techniques, to try to avoid the problem, but these measures are not always fully successful. Serial aspiration or draining off the fluid with a needle and syringe in the office may be required if the volume is problematic enough. Bleeding or hematoma formation are much more concerning, however, if they occur. Luckily, they are rare, but would likely require a trip back to the operating room to stop the bleeding or evacuate a hematoma that is built up. Too much bleeding can become life-threatening in the worst case, and a hematoma in the extreme can stretch the flap to the point of vascular compromise, as well as become a setup for potential infection. Contour problems and asymmetry after healing. These can be a source of distress for the patient who has specifically presented for the surgery with the goal of improving contour. Now, sometimes there is a baseline anatomic asymmetry preoperatively, so careful scrutiny of preop photos is helpful. 
But occasionally, skin resection or liposuction technique can be a little different from one side or one area to the next, despite best attempts, as this procedure is not an exact science. Preoperative discussion of such possibilities with patients may allow them to process this outcome with less anxiety. Then decisions can later be made as to whether a small revision will be needed or not. Another potential cause of contour irregularity may be rupture of internal fascial plication sutures, often related to too much activity too soon. And again, if the problem is large enough, it may need to be surgically corrected. Numbness of the skin flap, at least to some degree, is quite routine and usually resolves over the next several weeks. It is possible, however, that there may be some residual areas of permanent numbness. This sequela is not critical to function, but can be an unpleasant new baseline for the patient. Of more concern, however, would be flap necrosis, meaning some of the skin flap is not surviving due to ischemia or limited blood supply. Sometimes ischemia can be caused by the dissection being too extensive and impairing the vascular supply to the inferior portion of the flap. Or it could be due to too much pressure on the flap. Furthermore, it may be a result of other factors, such as reduced oxygen delivery to the tissues from smoking, etc. In any case, if it looks like ischemia is an impending problem, the surgeon will determine if salvage attempts are reasonable, such as release of some tight sutures, or application of nitropase to the involved skin region to dilate blood vessels, or even the use of hyperbaric oxygen. But if it is clear that the process is irreversible and necrosis is truly present, then plans are often made for a resection of the necrotic portion of the flap with flap advancement and reclosure or reconstruction, depending upon the extent of the involvement. Alternatively, conservative treatment can always be employed by just trimming necrotic areas and letting the rest heal in, but this may lead to more problematic scarring. And lastly, serious limb or life-threatening complications like DVT, deep venous thrombosis, or PE, pulmonary embolism, are potentials related to an abdominoplasty. But luckily, they are pretty infrequent. Patients are usually screened for such risk preoperatively, and a combination of mechanical and chemical preventative measures may be undertaken. Regardless, if any post-op patient calls or presents with calf pain or shortness of breath, this should be taken very seriously and worked up urgently. Well, we've covered a lot of ground in this discussion about abdominoplasty and hit the major points which will be valuable to you as you interact with patients undergoing this popular procedure. And in the future, I trust you will find how enjoyable it can be to facilitate a patient's journey through a process that can be so effective at contour changing and sometimes life changing. That concludes this episode of Aesthetic Staff Bootcamp Podcast, available to you exclusively through the Aesthetic Society. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and found it both enlightening and useful. Don't forget to explore the other informative episodes as well. Special thanks to Elastin for sponsorship of this series. For patients considering surgical procedures, pain and downtime are two of the biggest concerns. That's why Elastin Skincare developed a revolutionary new product specifically designed to help minimize discomfort, accelerate the recovery process by reducing the appearance of bruising and swelling, and improve the overall patient experience. While Elastin is widely recognized for its groundbreaking periprocedural skincare technology, Reform and Repair Complex with Trihex Technology is the company's first innovation in the surgical space, and top plastic surgeons are already talking about it. Dr. Lori A. Cassis of the University of Chicago Medicine says, 
the acceleration in the healing process for the patient and the improved patient experience is undeniable. Learn more about Reform and Repair and Elastin's other procedure pairing and daily skincare at www.elastin.com reform. That's A-L-A-S-T-I-N dot com slash reform.